Last Sunday, we looked at the church in Thyatira. It was a tolerating church. It tolerated sin. It tolerated a gal uh, whom Jesus called Jezebel, uh, who was spreading her kind of demonic pre-Gnostic teachings and sexually immoral practices and these things within the congregation. And Christ chastised the church, and he threatened to throw Jezebel into hell and destroy her spiritual children with death and throw the deceived believers who were following her into tribulation unless they repent. In the next section, we are going to look at the letter to the church in Sardis. Sardis was located about 30 miles or so south of Thyatira, near the junction of the roads from Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, and the main road leading into central Asia Minor. In other words, it was at a very, very critical spot or crossroads. And Sardis was originally founded as a hilltop citadel or fortress where King Croesus of the Lydian kingdom lived. That whole region, actually, in Turkey, where we see all of these churches and cities, was called the Kingdom of Lydia back many, many centuries before this was written. And and this particular city, this citadel, was virtually impenetrable because it it was up on a very tall hill, 1,500-foot tall hill, and it had three perpendicular walls on three sides and only one difficult, narrow path going up into the city with one entrance. And it was an easily defended city because of those perpendicular walls, those cliffs. I mean, basically, it was on the edge of a bunch of cliffs. And it was very easily defended because the only way in was that path, and the Lydian army could easily wipe out invaders as they came up that path. And the city, though, grew and grew and expanded, and it eventually outgrew its hilltop perch. And a new section had to be built at the base of the hill. So you had kind of like um, lower Sardis and upper Sardis. Now the ordinary citizens, the regular Joes, lived in the lower Sardis. And the upper echelon wealthy citizens, including the king, They all lived in Upper Sardis, up in the citadel in the fortress. That's where the king's palace was, up in the high part. And Sardis as a whole was an incredibly wealthy city. Very, very wealthy. Uh, One of the most wealthy cities of all time. And easily one of the most wealthy cities in Asia Minor or in that really part of the world at the time. Most of its wealth came from mining operations at the nearby Pactolus River and from wool production. It is said that the first, the very first gold and silver coins were minted in Sardis. And it is also said that the first wool dyeing techniques were developed there in Sardis as well. At its height, it had about 100,000 residents, which is really, really large for an ancient city. Most of the cities had 5,000 people, 6,000 people. Uh, The cities that we've been looking at in Revelation all had 40,000, like Thyatira, 
I think had 60,000. Um, Ephesus had about 200,000, so it was the largest. But the largest city of the seven had about 200,000. This one had about 100,000 at its height. So these were not like New York City or San Francisco where there's 800,000 people or San Jose where there's about a million people. These cities were considerably smaller, but in the Roman world, they were very, very large. And Sardis remained the capital of Lydia until it was conquered by Cyrus, king of Persia, in roughly 549 BC. And what happened was the, the King Croesus got overly confident and decided to enter into the war that was happening, and he attacked Cyrus's forces and caused a big ruckus and then started losing, so he decided to flee back to, to Sardis. And guess who followed him? Cyrus. <laughs> and so the city was conquered at that point by Cyrus. It was never the same. And then later, of course, it was brought under Greek control by Alexander the Great, who destroyed Cyrus and everyone else. And then later it was brought under Seleucid control by Antiochus III, or uh, we call him Antiochus the Great or Antiochus Epiphanes. And then ultimately it was brought under Roman control under Emperor Augustus. And sadly, the city was totally and absolutely obliterated in 1402 by Timor, who was a Mongol general. You remember when the Roman Empire sort of fell when all the Mongols and, and barbarians came in and destroyed it, and that's when Sardis was literally leveled, never to be the same. Today it lies in ruins uh, near the Turkish city of Sart. Sart. And it has, like some of these other cities, become a popular tourist destination, especially for Christians who love church history. Uh, there are a lot of ruins in, in this area, in this place, and, and uh, there is a, a huge Jewish synagogue and a temple to Artemis or Sibyl and Roman baths and a gymnasium. There's all sorts of things to visit there and look at. In 17 B.C., a massive earthquake leveled Sardis, and Emperor Tiberius gave 2.5 million denarius, and you think in terms of denarius, a denarius is a day's wage for a common laborer. So this guy, this emperor at the time, gave a ton of money to reconstruct the city to help the citizens reconstruct. And, and new buildings were erected, among which were buildings that I've described, like the gymnasium, a large basilica or synagogue. It had a, a majestic colonnaded street and just rows of shops and stores. I mean, it was a really beautiful city. In terms of religion, Sardis was primarily centered on Artemis, or Sibyl, the Greco-Roman goddess of hunting and uh, fertility and wild animals and the wilderness. I don't understand. I mean, I know these Greco-Roman gods were developed by the Greeks and the Romans, but I don't understand how you can be a god of like, okay, I got the wilderness and hunting and all that. That's really cool. Oh, by the way, you're also the, you know, the, the god of fertility. I, mean, I just don't know how they came up with this stuff. What a bizarre combination. What do you oversee? Hunting and fertility. I mean, that's just like, those two don't go together. That's just weird. But this alleged goddess 
was the goddess of the hunt. Really, that's how you want to think of her. And there was a temple constructed to Artemis that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it wasn't in Sardis. It was in Ephesus. And there, are, of course, are ruins there that, that you can see that, that uh, represent that temple. And it was just absolutely massive. As in Smyrna and Pergamum, the imperial cult of emperor worship was also very, very popular in Sardis. In other words, the people who lived in Sardis, the Lydians, they worshipped the Roman Caesars, the Roman emperors, uh, as people in Smyrna and other cities did. And Sardis featured a temple honoring Caesar Augustus and his wife, Livia. She was the empress. And Augustus in Sardis and in these other cities where he had temples, he was worshipped as a son of God. He was considered to be like, um, a, uh, he was like half God and half man. Uh, this is the way the people thought of him. And so he was worshipped as a son of God or as the son of God. And his wife, Livia, was worshipped as a mother goddess, as a mother goddess. So, so to worship Augustus as the son of God and to worship his wife as a mother goddess or the mother of God, does that not ring a bell? Does that not sound familiar to us? The goddess-mother-son cult of Livia and Augustus eventually found its way into something that is very big today, and that is Roman Catholicism, okay, with Mary and Jesus. Jesus is absolutely the true Son of God, undoubtedly the true Son of God and the true Son of Man. But Mary is no goddess, but she is hailed and worshipped and adored as one. And I'm telling you where this idea came from. It came from Greco-Roman culture and the worship of Caesars and their empress wives as goddess mothers. That's where it originated. And really the turning point in Catholicism was during Constantine when he legalized Christianity. And the next thing you know, the pastorate became more of a profession than a kind of calling. And so all sorts of people, all sorts of men with various backgrounds were appointed as bishops over the churches and stuff. And they brought in these sorts of bad theologies and ideas and began to teach them in the churches. And that's where you end up getting this stuff. There were also many, many Jews in Sardis. There weren't a lot of them in Thyatira, as we learned last week, but there were a ton of Jews in Sardis that date back all the way to the days of the prophet Obadiah. Now, we know that there were many Jews there, and one of the ways that we can tell is because of the massive size of the synagogue. You wouldn't have a synagogue of this magnitude with 20 people. You would have it with many hundreds. It was one of the largest buildings in the city at 90 meters long. So it was longer than a football field and probably as wide as a football field. The assembly hall alone was 18 by 60 meters. So this was a, a massive 
structure, a massive building, one of the largest buildings in the city. In fact, it was the largest synagogue in the world outside of Israel. Epigraphic evidence from the ruins shows that Jews were very, very active in local politics. I, I think there's one inscription on, on a piece of marble that shows that there were 27 city council members at this time in the city. And I, I believe it was 15 of those council members were Jewish. And so there were a lot of Jews in the city, and they held high positions in the city council. In fact, uh, one of those Jews served as the chief financial officer to the city. So you've got all of that, and then you had the church at Sardis. And some say that the church was in Sardis was meeting in, uh, in homes at the time like it generally was in the first century. Although if you do a Google search, you'll find an actual building that's labeled as the Christian church. And it was massive, a massive structure. Now, I don't know if that building, those ruins have been mislabeled. I don't know if uh, that is where the actual church back then met. I don't know for sure. I don't know if that structure was actually a very wealthy person's home. And, and that's where the church met in her or his home. We don't know for sure. Could have been that the church was meeting in homes. And we're not exactly sure who planted this church. We like to think that maybe it was the Apostle Paul since he planted so many churches. And if he did, he would have planted it during his third missionary journey. Uh, but if you know his missionary journeys, the third one was mostly about bolstering and building up the churches that he had planted he could have planted it during his third journey because he actually went through this territory. I think, as I said at the very beginning of this series, that it had been planted by the church at Ephesus. And we know that it had been planted about 40 years before the writing of Revelation. So it was about a 40-year-old church. And some of us are thinking, well, that's not a very old church. Well, um, find a church in America that's over 40 years old. There's not a whole lot of them. I mean, there's a few, but I think even Big Valley, my old home church, is in the 30s. So 40 years old for a church is pretty good. You know, of course, in parts of other parts of Europe, you have churches that have been around for centuries and centuries, but for the most part, about 40 years old. And of the churches that we've looked at so far, I believe the church at Sardis received the worst diagnosis from Christ. In fact, I think it received the worst diagnosis from him of all the churches. Some would say, well, you're discounting Laodicea. It was lukewarm. Christ said it made him sick. That is absolutely true. Now, let's just think about the churches real quick. Ephesus had what? It's diagnosis, love loss. Smyrna had persecution. Smyrna hadn't done anything wrong. It just had a lot of persecution it was dealing with. Pergamum had a terrible thing, compromise. Thyatira had something that's even worse than compromise, or at least that what compromise leads to, and that's toleration of sin. Laodicea was, you know, lukewarm, and Christ threatened to spit it out of his mouth. That's pretty bad. But Sardis was dead. Sardis was a dead, dead, spiritually dead church. Now, lukewarm sounds terrible, but dead is dead. I don't know about you, but to me, dead is like the worst thing, right? Come on. Well, it's not as bad as being lukewarm. Well, yeah, you're dead. 
So I was watching a video yesterday, and the guy's all, and this church right here received the worst, you know, the worst letter from them. And I'm like, dude, you, Sardis was dead. Dead is dead. By being dead, it, it still had a few members in it that were alive. But there were not enough true living disciples, believers in the church to constitute the church as being alive. And so for the most part, as a whole, this church was dead. It had spiritually died. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Let's start at verse 1a. Verse 1a. We have to break up verses here because there's so much going on. But 1a, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Stop there. Borrowing from John's greeting in chapter 1, verse 4, Christ begins by identifying himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God represent the, the Holy Spirit in his fullness. So, so the, we're not to think that Christ is enthroned in heaven holding seven spirits. This is a reference to Christ having and, and even sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is represented by the number seven, which reflects his fullness. And so that's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is described in his fullness in relationship to Messiah in this great prophetic passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Here the word says, he is the spirit of the Lord. There's number one, right? He is the spirit of wisdom. There's number two. He is the spirit of understanding. Three. He is the spirit of, of wise counsel. There's four. He is the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. They, they call that the, the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ is saying here. I have the Holy Spirit in His fullness. Think about the connection here and what Christ is actually saying. Sardis was a dead church. What does a dead church need? It would need several things, but most importantly, it would need the Holy Spirit right? We need the Holy Spirit because only the Holy Spirit can regenerate and bring spiritually dead people to life. What Christ is in effect saying here is that I have what you need. I have what you need. Okay, that's what he's saying. And, and in every in every greeting from the Lord, he says certain things that are totally apropos or totally applied to that church in that context. Knowing that it's a dead church, he says, I have what you need, the Spirit in his fullness. And when Christ tells them that he has the seven stars, he was borrowing from John's vision in chapter 1 and verse 16. 
The seven stars represent seven pastors or seven elders. Back in that text, in that vision, Christ holds them in His right hand, which means that He sovereignly cares for them and sovereignly protects them. Like the other letters, this one is also addressed to the angel of this church, and as always, angel means messenger, and the messengers of these churches were the pastor's elders, or some kind of representative from this church. You just think about the way Christ describes himself. He has the Spirit in, his, in the Spirit's fullness, and he has pastor and his, true pastors and elders within his grip. Those are the two things that this church needs. This church is dead. It needs the Holy Spirit to bring it to life, and it needs good men who will serve faithfully. It has neither at this point. I like what MacArthur said about verse 1a. His commentary is spectacular. He said, Christ describes himself as the one who possesses what this church needs most, the Holy Spirit and faithful shepherds. The church at Sardis had neither. They were devoid of the Holy Spirit and were without spiritually qualified pastors. There was no godly leadership. The church was being led astray by men who did not know and love the truth. The life and power of the Holy Spirit was not there. The illuminating, enabling work of the Holy Spirit had all but ceased. Without the Holy Spirit and without faithful leaders, the church was dead. It was a church dominated by the flesh, dominated by sin, dominated by unbelief, and mostly populated by the unregenerate. In other words, people who have never even been born again, natural men. And he said the church at Sardis had desperate spiritual needs that only Christ could meet, end quote. Now let's analyze Christ's diagnosis in the next line. We look at verse 1b. Here's what he says next. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Oh, man. These are devastating words, destroying words. Imagine if you're hearing this read aloud in your church that was written specifically to your church. What a, a, a terrible diagnosis. What a sad diagnosis. And Christ says, I know your works. So we know the church at Sardis had works. In in other words, it it was busy on Sundays with its worship services. You know, it was it was busy during the week with its programs. You know, they had Sardis Awana. I mean, I don't know what they had, but they had things going on during the week. We had a recovery ministry, you know, they had these things going on during the week on Sundays. It was, it was even, I would venture to say, even to say that it was busy in the community with surf projects and outreaches. You know, love Sardis. <laughs> and, and all of this religiosity and religious busyness, all of this activity gave it a reputation for being alive among men. 
I mean, seriously, this is the kind of church that maybe you belong to a smaller church or you don't belong to a church at all, but you see all the activity and all these quote-unquote Christians out doing things. This is a church that you would say, well, look, they, they really, this is a good church. They're doing a lot of stuff. They're very busy in the community. They're, they're feeding homeless people and, you know, they're, they're cleaning up alleyways and removing, you know, graffiti, which they had to do with the chisel back then. Ding, 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 ding. Caesar rules, you know. By all appearances, this church was alive and, and vibrant. This church was able to generate the appearance of spiritual life through busyness and other means and literally fool its neighbors, fool its visitors, but it was not able to fool the omniscient, omnipresent Lord Jesus who sees and knows all things, who peers beyond the busyness and looks right into the heart of men, who knows who we really are and who we truly are. And when he looked at this church and when he looked into this church, he saw spiritually dead people playing church. That's what he saw. He saw spiritual corpses, spiritual zombies going through religious motions. That's what he saw. We go to MacArthur again. I should have just preached his commentary. It's better than my sermon. And this is in your bulletin, and this quote is just, if you've ever been to a museum and seen stuffed animals, you'll know. He says, the church at Sardis was like a museum in which stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. How many of you have been to one of these places and you marveled at the African Serengeti exhibit? You know, where the cheetah's like... You're like, I could actually pet that one. Everything in there looks normal. Everything in there looks kind of alive. But it's all dead and stuffed. In fact, the trees aren't even real. And that's what this church was like. It was like a museum with dead stuffed animals that had the appearance of life, but were dead. That's Christ's diagnosis. And if you're like me, you say to yourself, well, what killed this church? Right? How did it die? How did this, how can this happen? Well, we don't know for sure because Christ doesn't tell us in the text. He doesn't say how it died. MacArthur suggests that it may have been a combination of the things that were destroying the churches in Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Laodicea. You know, there was love loss and compromise and tolerance of sin, and some of them were lukewarm. He says maybe it was a combination of all of those things, and this certainly could be true. It may have been compromise. It may have been friendship with the world because these Christians in this particular city and church, and, and we know this to be true because of many of the inscriptions that are left in the ruins, that the Christians were really in tight with the citizens and with the Jews and with others in the city. And, and you might be thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? Well, it can be if they're being missional. But in Sardis, it wasn't about mission. It was about getting along. It was about not creating gospel tension with the Jews who were great persecutors of Christians. 
It was about not ticking off Greco-Roman zealots. These Christians became like their environment to appease the environment at the expense of Christ. And, and the Jews did this too. You would think, well, the Jews would never do that with the Romans because they hated the Romans. They totally did it in Sardis. Rachel and I watched a video yesterday, and there's this altar in the synagogue that still stands, this beautiful marble-carved or granite-carved altar, and, and it was in the synagogue, in the Jewish house of worship, and on the sides of it, there are what? Eagles. Well, eagles are not an insignia that Jews use. They use the menorah and the Star of David and those things. Eagles were the insignia that the Romans used. Why would you inscribe on the side of an altar to Jehovah Roman eagles? Because even the Jews compromised and got along with their Roman neighbors. In other words, they weren't even living out their religion to full effect. And Christians in this community were doing the same thing. Uh, there, there was this oneness and unity in this community. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be at peace with all men. Scripture tells us to do that. But the gospel is a deadly stumbling block. When Christians begin to preach the gospel and say there's only one way, one truth, one life, that ticks off people. And very clearly they had removed that from their version of the gospel because they wouldn't have been so close with their neighbors. They would have been persecuted as in Smyrna and in Pergamum and other places. Christians here were appeasers. They had become worldly. They suppressed the truth to get along with everyone. Is this what led to the church's death? Yeah, in a sense. May have been these things. But ultimately, churches die for one reason and one reason alone, and that is toleration of sin. Sin kills churches. In fact, I did a little research. Heart disease is the number one killer of people in the U.S. I don't know if you knew that or not. Cancer is number two. How sad. But sin is the number one all-time killer of churches. Nothing will kill a church faster than sin, than tolerated, unrepented, unconfessed sin that is left alone. And this would include the seminal, the high sin of not taking Scripture seriously. In fact, that's usually the first sin that a church will commit. It will stop taking Scripture seriously. It will stop seeing Scripture as authoritative, as binding, as plenary, as um, inerrant, right? As sufficient, as the only rule for life and practice. When a church begins to move in the direction away from Scripture, that's when everything else starts to fall into place, all of the other sins and false teachings and things. Churches that have a low view of Scripture are churches that are dying, if not already dead. I'll never forget this, and I, I don't like to sling hash at local churches, but you know, sometimes you just kind of have to. But when we first planted... When we first started, we were approached, I won't name it, but we were approached by a local church that wanted to partner with us. And we, you know, we, some of us, like Paul over here who's been visiting, 
had been involved in church plants before, but the rest of us were utterly green. And so it, it, you know, it was like, well, what are, they, what are they saying? What could they do? How could they help? And they said, well, we, you, know, you just come under our banner and change your name to our name, and, and we're rocking and rolling. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. Let me, let me go take a look at your church's website and look at your doctrinal statement and figure out what you guys believe and what you do and look at your leadership structure. And, and most of what I looked at lined up with us until I got to their staff and until I got to their elder board, which had nine women and two men. Now, the women are thinking, praise the Lord. <laughs> Wrong. That's not God's design for leadership in the church on the elder board. And what that told me was that this is a church that does not have a high view of Scripture. And guess what? That very same church, years later now, is affirming gay couples. And that's in the last seven years. They began with the sin of not having a high view of Scripture, which has led over time to other sins and to the acceptance of homosexual marriage as normal, healthy, God-ordained, and right. And we know that the Scripture says it's not healthy, ordained, or right, that it's destructive, that it kills, that it's sinful, and that the gospel is the only remedy for homosexuality or any other sin. We know that. And so in that moment, I said, no, they have a low view of Scripture. You can't, you can't partner with somebody like that. We can love them and pray for them, but... We can't be under their banner because it'll be a, only a matter of time before we probably develop a low view of Scripture. You know, and the next thing you know, I'm, I don't know, preaching in a Speedo. It's like, <laughs> I have no idea why I said that, but it just one thing leads to another. And then next thing you know, it's like, Low view of Scripture is, the, is really the seminal sin. That's where it all begins. If you start to degrade that, then it opens the door to insanity and ultimately spiritual death. And so sin kills churches, and sin was what killed this church. And, and this is really essentially why the previous letter we looked at, the, the letter to Thyatira, is so essential. Don't tolerate sin. Deal with it biblically. And when you have people that won't repent, remove them. Heaven forbid you'd ever give them your pulpit like they gave to Jezebel. But you have to deal with sin because it kills. I mean, what does Scripture say about sin? What would happen to Adam and Eve if they sinned by eating the forbidden fruit? They would die. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is what causes death? Sin. It causes spiritual death and it causes physical death. This church died because of sin. What are the danger signs that a church is dying? A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its history and past achievements. There's churches that that really aren't living in the now, but they're really resting on their past and their founding, and, and we have a great heritage, and they're relying on those things. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Lutheran church today that actually follows the teachings of Luther. And yet Lutheran churches will boast about their you know, Reformation heritage, their ties to Martin Luther, their ties to Philip Melanchthon, and same thing happens in some Reformed circles with Calvinism. I mean, you have churches that are Calvinistic today that are performing gay weddings. 
It's like, what are they doing? They're resting on their laurels, their past, their past achievements, who they were in the past. And, and if you have a church that's doing that, they're not living in the now and in the present and in God's word and living that out, that's a danger sign. A church is in danger when it is more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality. Well, I tell you, every Sunday we do this. We do this, 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 then we kneel, we get up, we kneel, we get up, we kneel, we get up, we say things in Latin, I don't know, we get up, we do this, we do this, we do this. Liturgical forms are what we're interested in, but not too much when it comes to spiritual reality. And you see that today. You know, it's like the liturgy is what is most important. It's key that we maintain that, and we have for centuries, while denying spiritual reality. A church is in danger when it focuses on social justice, rewriting wrongs, reparations, rather than changing people's hearts through the life-changing, transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a huge problem today. Churches now are become just captivated by social justice and these sorts of things, which are made-up terms. Reparations? Paying for the things that, that, that our ancestors did wrong 150 years ago? Why, why are churches talking about these things? Why are churches focusing on these things? You, you know what the problem is, is? You have a lot of bandwagon churches. Whatever the new thing is, that's what they jump on board with. And the new thing today is social justice and rewriting the rungs and fixing all the stuff that we did to this ethnicity and, and all of this. And do I think that, that you know, fixing things and all that's important? Of course I do. But I realize the only fix is not handing someone who was never a slave money. It's giving them the gospel. And when churches give themselves over to these social things these social endeavors, it's a sign that they are in trouble. A church is in danger when it is more concerned with material things, like its campus. I remember one time a guy went to visit another church and the pastor, all the pastor talked about the entire time this mission guy, this missionary was visiting church, all he talked about the entire time was the newly paved parking lot. Well, what is the Lord doing here? Well, he gave us the money to build a new parking lot. Well, what was it like before? Gravel. Now it's asphalt. That's the crowning achievement of your church. Yeah, it's a good thing. It was 100 grand. When churches are more concerned with material things, materialism, their campus, their parking lot, their cafe. We don't sell peats in our cafe, we sell Starbucks. I saw a hilarious meme the other day where a church finally opened a Chick-fil-A on its campus, but sadly it's closed on Sundays. <laughs> Babylon B is the best. They do the silliest things. But when the church is concerned about these sorts of things, the bookstore, the cafe, the campus, the kids' space, when it's more concerned about all of that than with spiritual things, that's a warning sign. That is a warning sign. A church is in danger when it is more concerned with what men think 
than with what God has said. And the churches that are very materialistic and all of this other stuff tend to really put a lot of value on what men think because that's why they glorify or beautify their campuses. We want this place to be so utterly beautiful like a a sanctuary for sinners. Spend millions of dollars making that campus something. And it's to appease men. It's to please men. They're more concerned with what men think. And you could say that this is true and not in the political sense, but in a moral sense. We're really concerned about what those men on the Supreme Court said, so we're going to capitulate rather than what God has clearly said in His Word. Now, there is a higher court, and there is a king, and he's greater than Trump, believe it or not. A church is in danger when it is more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God. I recently visited a, a church's website. And I thought, you know, I like to check out what local churches do. And I, I've never seen anything like this, but on the very front page in bold lettering, it said, We are Calvinist. And I was like, Okay, that's bizarre. Why wouldn't you put, we are all about Jesus? I'm not saying it's wrong to be a Calvinist. But why why would that be your mission statement? Why would that be the first thing that you want people to read on your website when they visit your website? I mean, if that's who you are, fine. You can have, if that's part of your theological identity, great. Put it on page six with your doctrinal statement. But right on the front, we are Calvinistic. And that tells me something about that church. They're Calvinistic. (laughs) Doctrinal creeds and systems of theology are important things, but they're not the Word of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is wonderful. It's not Scripture. The Baptist Confession of Faith is wonderful. It's not Scripture. might have some Scripture in it. And there is a tendency to, to pursue that which men has, man has written, and it sounds really good, and it might be biblical in a sense, but we tend to be very attracted to those things, and we, we make it about those things rather than just the Word of God. And you're in danger if that's what you're about A church is in danger when it loses its conviction that the Bible is the divinely inspired, inerrant, plenary, authoritative, objective, sufficient Word of God and only rule for faith and practice. That's the thing that I talked about a minute ago. I would call it biblical degradation. Downgrading Scripture. Big trouble when you do that because it leads to all of this other stuff. In the next section, Christ lays out for the church a path to spiritual restoration, to revival, by giving it five steps to follow. Very practical here. Let's move to verses 2 and 3a. Here's what Christ says after giving them the diagnosis, right? You think you're alive, but you're dead, D-E-A-D. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So clear. These five things. First, the church needed to wake up. In other words, the the days of indifference were over. The days of just 
kind of going along with things, were over. They were now being called to action. And the first action is wake up, snap out of your spiritual stupor. Snap out of your spiritual sleep. Realize what is happening in your church. Evaluate the situation and get involved to change things. That's what he means by wake up. It's time to wake up. And I say this later, but I think he's appealing to the ones who are actually alive. I mean, you can't make dead people wake up. They're dead. He's talking to the faithful few. The uh, Old Testament term would be the, the believing remnant. Thank God they had a remnant. They wouldn't have even got this letter. They would have been just destroyed. So the first thing is to wake up. Second, the church needed to strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, this church was overrun with apostasy, but there were a few embers of spiritual life still burning there, just barely. Christ exhorts the church to fan into flame what remains, those embers before they die out. Third, the church needed to remember what they had seen and heard. Okay, the church had to go back to the truth it had learned from the apostles and from God's word, which, by the way, was in circulation, complete and in circulation at this time. As soon as they received revelation, that was it. Now, they weren't like Bibles like we have where it was easy access, but all of Paul's letters, everything was out there. They needed to go back to the Word of God. They needed to go back to what they were taught by the apostles, by Paul when he passed through there. The truths about Christ, about sin, about salvation, about sanctification, about how to live your life as a Christian. They had to go back to the grassroots. Back to the basics. They had to reestablish a solid doctrinal foundation from some creed. No, from God's word. What? To serve as a base for renewal. Without this, the church would literally go nowhere. How can a church do anything right when it doesn't know the word of God? It can't. And that's one of the problems with today is the people of God do not know the Word of God. Churches do not know the Word of God. They're winging it. How can you please God? How can you glorify God? How can you be on mission? How can you do anything when you don't know the Word, when you don't know its teachings, when you don't know Christ in the right way? Fourth, the church needed to keep it. Keep what? Keep the truth it had received and heard. Okay, go back to what you had been taught. Crack open your Bible and, and don't just read it, but keep it. And keep it translates as what? Obey it. You see, it's not enough to know the truth. We must keep and obey it. Christ was, was not calling these the faithful few, the remaining alive, spiritually alive people here in the church, he was not calling them to become mere intellectuals who know the truth. He was calling them to be disciples who know and obey and live out the truth. He was calling them to be hearers and doers. 
That's what he means by keep it. Remember and keep it. Do it. And lastly, the church needed to repent. Without repentance, none of the other changes would have lasted or made much of a difference in the life of this church. It, it had to stop compromising. It had to sever its ties with the world. You know, if it had Roman inscriptions on its worship altars, it had to shave them off. Break with the world. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Sever those ties. Break it off. Stop tolerating. Stop promoting sin. Replace the false teachers with sound teachers. In fact, I have some for you. It had to drive out unrepentant Jezebels and Judases. If the church obeyed Christ and diligently practiced each of these steps, spiritual renewal would occur. In fact, I think he would send the Holy Spirit in such a way that he would work through those means and accomplish it. And yet, if it disobeyed what Christ is telling them to do here, the consequences would be most severe. Look at verse 3b. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. Christ basically tells the church that if it disobeys his instructions, he will come when it least expects it and destroy it. I will snatch up that lampstand faster than you can say Moses. And Christ was actually borrowing from Lydian history when he said this. When King Cyrus and his massive Persian army attacked Lower Sardis, King Croesus and his people fled up into Upper Sardis in the mountain where they thought they would be safe and secure. He thought, well, when Cyrus comes against us up here after he destroys the bottom half, when he comes up here, he's got to come up that path and we'll nuke him. We'll have archers and swordsmen and it'll be a bloodbath. We'll hammer them right when they come up the middle. And so he was resting in the confidence that, you know, that Cyrus would come up that one way and that they would be able to handle them. And after nightfall, Cyrus had skilled men scale the rock walls and enter the city and attack several positions, including the only entrance, which they easily overcame and opened up. So what could march right in? And guess what? King Croesus was fast asleep while these things happened. And he was suddenly awakened by the sound of clanging swords and, and his people screaming and dying and being slaughtered by Cyrus. Cyrus and his soldiers had come upon Croesus like a thief in the night at an unexpected hour, and Sardis and the Lydian kingdom fell. Christ is telling them, the church, do you remember what happened in 549? I will do the same thing to you. 
but it'll be much worse. That's what he's saying. Now, the number of faithful believers in the church at Sardis, as I said earlier, was small enough not to impact Christ's evaluation that the church as a whole was dead. But that did not mean that he would fail to reward the faithful few, the believing remnant. You think about it. This is whom Christ was speaking to in the previous verses, because as I said, spiritually dead people can't wake up or do any of the things that he commanded. Only true believers can do these things, and I think that's who he's been appealing to in the letter. He's telling that remnant, wake up, do what you're supposed to do, live it out. Christ appealed to them in verses 2 and 3, and in the next line, he promises them a reward. Now look at verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In the ancient world, white garments were worn for festive occasions like weddings. We see that even today, especially with the bride. Um, They were worn at other celebratory functions like a a victory parade for a battle. You know, you'd gone out and won a battle and you would come home and shower and change your clothes and put on all white and march through the streets of Rome or wherever. So white garments reflected things that were happening in that culture at weddings and victory celebrations. In the Bible, white garments represent purity and holiness Christ promises to clothe the faithful few, the believing remnant, those who have not soiled their garments, in white and walk with them. I think he's referring to the future marriage supper of the Lamb, where all true believers will be gathered together and clothed in white to dine with their Lord, Revelation 19, 7 through 9. He might be referring to that. He could also be referring to the righteousness that every true believer already wears. Christ provides a perfect righteousness by imputation for all who truly trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. God imputes righteousness to believers apart from any good works they do. The righteousness of Christ covers them like a gleaming white spotless garment of absolute perfection. This is not something that comes. This is something that is now for us. When God looks at true believers, He sees not their sins. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, and He declares them justified. Christ could be referring to that here. I think it's the marriage supper, but He could be referring to either one or a combination of both, and maybe even something else. I do like how Christ calls the faithful few here worthy at the end of the verse. I love that. It's not that the faithful few made themselves worthy of Christ's promises by remaining unstained or, you know, pure. It's not what he's talking about. It's not what he had in mind here. He was referring to their walk. They were walking in a manner worthy of their calling as Christians, Ephesians 4.1. How? By not staining their garments with sin like everyone else in this church and like the culture. In verse 5, Christ issues a promise to those who conquer. He did this at or near the end of each letter 
to the conqueror it, in the church at Sardis, he guarantees three things. We'll cover them quickly. Number one, he will clothe them in white garments. Verse 5a, this is a repeat of the promise in verse 4, but here he increases its scope. He was pointing primarily, in verse 4, he was pointing primarily to the faithful few or remnant believers in the church. But here, he is pointing to all who by grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, respond positively to the revival, to Christ's commands, to everyone in the church who repents and, and obeys and remains faithful to the end. That's what he's saying. To the one who conquers and makes it all the way through to the end, who does the warfare, who fights against sin and Satan, and, and who does all the things that I've instructed, who lives out the Christian faith to the end, that person will be clothed in white garments. All supplies to the whole church, the true church. Secondly, he will never blot out his name from the book of life or out of the book of life, verse 5b. In the ancient world, rulers of cities kept all the names of their citizens in a book. There were two ways to have your name removed from this book. A, you died. When you physically died, your name would be removed because you're no longer a citizen. You're dead. And B, if you committed a capital offense against the city ordinances and laws, if you committed a capital offense, your name would be removed or blotted out from that book in the city or that represents all of its citizens. Those were the two ways that your name could be blotted out. And the book that is mentioned, and maybe you're familiar with Exodus 32, the book that is mentioned in verses 32 and 33 are that kind of book. God kept a record of the names of those who were in the covenant community in a book or in Israel. But when many Israelites sinned against him with the golden calf, he told Moses that he would blot out or remove the names of those who sinned against him. God revoked their citizenship and blotted out their names from his book. In fact, he put many of them to death. But the book that Christ mentioned in our verse is not the same kind of book. It is not a city or community book like in Exodus 32. It is the book of life, which contains the names of all true believers for all time. Another name for it is the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 21, 27. The names of all true believers for all time, for all the conquerors, were written in the Book of Life by God before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8. Unlike the other books, no names can be removed from the Book of Life because it was written with permanent, eternal ink by what? The immutable, unchanging hand of the sovereign God. Now, just think about these promises. Things were about to get seriously shaken up at the church at Sardis. Reading the letter would not only stir the faithful few, but it would convict sinners, it would infuriate the self-righteous, and it would call to arms every demon in the area. And there were no doubt a lot of demons there with all the Artemis worship and all that. 
If spiritual renewal or revival occurred in the church, it would soon impact the entire community and obviously grab the attention of Greco-Roman religious zealots and pious Jews and biased, intolerant leaders in high positions who could do what? Easily blot the names of the faithful Christians out of the city registry, out of that book. Remove their citizenship. The conquerors were about to engage in spiritual warfare like never before and suffer persecution like never before. And they needed to know that their salvation was totally secure. They needed to know that their citizenship in the kingdom of God was totally secure. And this is why Christ tells them, I will never remove your names from the book that contains the names of all who are in my kingdom. Let them take your names out of their books. Your names are in my book. That's what Christ promises. Thirdly, he will confess his name before his Father and before his angels. Verse 5c, the names of all true believers for all time are not only written with permanent eternal ink in the book of life, but Christ knows them by heart, John 10, 14, 2 Tim 2, 19, and he confesses those names before his Father and before angels. The conquerors were about to have their their names slandered, their names cursed and dragged through the court of public opinion and and removed from the city records and by the civil authorities from the city book and ledger, all that. And Christ basically tells them, don't worry about what people are going to say about you. Don't worry about your good names. I have confessed them before the highest authority and the highest court in creation, the angelic court. And I will continue to confess your names. Don't worry about it. This is what he tells them. What great promises. It's like he's preparing them for the onslaught of persecution and suffering that is going to come when they really begin to live out revival and to live for Christ. You're going to do this, and it's going to bring a lot of trouble. And in the midst of that trouble, remember my promises. Your names are secured. Your names are proclaimed in heaven's court. You are clothed in my perfect white righteousness now, but in the future you will be clothed in a white robe assembled at my supper table with me. What promises? Let's move to our last verse, verse 6. It's the famous thing that he says at the end of every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each of the seven letters ends with this statement. Christ exhorts those who have ears to hear to listen to what the Spirit says to the church at Sardis and to obey his instructions. It was not too late to save this dead church from ultimate doom. The faithful few had to wake up and respond quickly. It was as if as soon as they read this letter, the timer began to tick. It's counting down till I come at a time that you will not be ready for. Do as I have instructed. They had to act, and they had to act now. There was no tarrying or delaying here. Let me ponder it for a few weeks. No. As soon as you hear it read, wake up and do what I tell you. 
closing. There are spiritually dead and spiritually dying churches everywhere. They're not just, you know, some distant place. We, we have them in our community. RHC is not a spiritually dead church, nor is it a spiritually dying church. Praise God. It's neither of those. But we need to make sure that all of us, all of us, have been born again and are alive in Christ. That's not something that I'm convinced of at this church. And I know whenever I say that, people start wondering, I wonder if he's thinking about me. I even had somebody ask me last time I said it, were you thinking about me? I said, I did a few times. He was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm just kidding. No, I didn't have you in mind. It would be a mistake to assume that everyone in your church is saved, that everyone has been born again. That's not true in any church, only the church in heaven. That's the only church where that is true. Not here and not at RHC. It is totally possible for some of us to be relying on past religious experiences and our Christian upbringings on a decision we made years ago for Christ, on a prayer we prayed years ago at some kind of revival or crusade or at a children's camp at Hume Lake. It is totally possible for some of us to be relying on religious busyness and, and good deeds and, and maybe on morality. It is totally, totally possible for some of us to believe, to think that we are spiritually alive when we are actually spiritually dead. I guarantee you, when this letter was first read in front of this church, this church was so utterly surprised by that diagnosis because so many people in it thought they were spiritually alive. We need to know that past religious experiences, upbringings, decisions for Christ, the prayer of salvation, religious busyness, good deeds, and morality cannot cause us to be born again and made alive in Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And only He can cause us to be born again and make us alive in Christ. If we have been born again and are alive in Christ, our lives are going to be vastly different from what they were before. We will be relying not upon what we've done, not upon what we're currently doing, not upon what we think we'll be doing in the future, but entirely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That's where our reliance will be. We will love Christ and manifest our love for him through obedience to his commands. To say we love him while being disinterested in obedience to him is to say that we do not love him 
He said, if you love me, you will obey me. If we have been born again and we're alive in Christ, we will be more than hearers of the word. We will be doers of the word. And I will tell you, that is a big problem we have in this church family. We've got a lot of hearers. In fact, all of us love to hear the word and go to the Bible studies and all that. But when it comes to doing the word, some of us are not really interested in that. And I'll be the first to admit I'll be the first to testify that hearing the word is easier than doing the word, especially when we know that obedience to it will decimate our plans because that's usually what happens. Oh, I love that verse. I love what Pastor Phil said. I love what Pastor Cameron or Bruce said. I love what Brandon preached. I love it. But in the back of our mind, we're saying, if I do that, that is going to change things. And I do not want those things changed. That'll foul up all my plans. We all do this. What we fail to realize in those moments is that disobedience always results in something far worse. In the church at Sardis, it eventually resulted in spiritual death. Disobedience is sin. Sin does what? Kills. We need spiritual renewal in our church. Take it from the pastor. We need revival in this church. Because we have people who do not live as if they've been born again. And yet they say, They love Christ. And this happens in all churches. We need revival. We need renewal. I'm not convinced that everyone in this church has been born again and spiritually alive in Christ. So we we need to wake up. We need to repent. We need to cry out to Christ for mercy and plead with Him to send the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. That's what we need to do. Did the church at Sardis listen to the Spirit and heed Christ's instructions? Did spiritual renewal, did revival come into this church, this dead church? It would appear so. Several decades after John wrote Revelation, a man named Melito was appointed as the bishop or lead pastor of the church at Sardis. He was a powerful, Holy Spirit-filled preacher and prolific writer. He actually bears the title Early Church Father. That such a prominent man as Melito served as bishop to this church shows that at least some revival took place there. It also shows that God can bring revival to any spiritually dead or dying church and to churches like RHC. It gives us hope, doesn't it? 